Psalm 701, certainly delighted to mark that and use that later in the service time this morning. It is always a privilege to gather as God would have us to in spirit and in truth with a desire to offer our sincere, heartfelt worship certainly unto Him. Very, very thankful for the presence of each and every individual today. I might add one thing as far as announcement that will be a center part in many ways of our discussion this morning. Perhaps the ladies certainly keep in mind about the Tuesday evening Bible study class this coming Tuesday, day after tomorrow, 6 p.m., and certainly as you meet, you'll look at the next lesson. I think it's lesson six, Denise told me in that, in that booklet, having to do with the topic of the lesson this morning. With that in mind, look at this next slide with me if you would. The Restoration Movement. We're going to try to at least over the next oh, 25, 30 minutes or so, highlight some of the basic features and attributes of one of the grandest, one of the most amazing, one of the most remarkable religious movements in the history of the world. As we do that, you'll notice certainly on that slide, we might well do a powerful idea just to define the word restoration. What does it mean to restore something? I know that you and I, by and large, are well appreciative of the, the sentiment behind that. If there's a piece of furniture, for example, that perhaps you've acquired in some way, and it's your goal to restore it, you're not trying to make it look what you could go today in a department store and buy. You're trying to restore it to the original look, to restore it to its original condition, the way it looked when, you first, when it would first have been manufactured, however many years ago that would have been. By the same token, if an individual would like to restore a car, it's not your goal to make it look like what you could go and buy today, but rather it is your goal, your motivation, to make it look in every regard, both internal and external, the way it would have appeared as it came off the showroom lot when it was first manufactured. That's the idea behind restoration, isn't it? You're not trying to reshape something just to make it give the appearance of newness. To restore means to remake it into the original condition that it once had had. Well, there's a movement, of course, in the history of religion, at least in this country, very significant, called the Restoration Movement. Let's devote a time of study this morning using the Word of God to reflect on what that movement was and some of the details that our ladies are going to study perhaps from a different perspective on Tuesday night. You may notice near the bottom of that slide I've asked some questions that may well motivate us through the time of our study this morning. First of all, what was it that was in need of being restored? Second of all, why, given that the church is the answer to that first question, why was the church in need of being restored? Finally, last thing on the slide, what were some of the details that took place that at least can be so meaningful to you and me today as we think about our charge and challenge that God still gives us every day? With that in mind, let's use this next slide to highlight something very critical, something exceedingly significant, namely the existence of the Lord's body, the existence of the church of our Lord. The Bible leaves no doubt and states in the greatness of clarity that the church was established exactly at the time that the God of heaven detailed and planned it to be. 
In particular, you might notice that the Old Testament had foretold that it would begin. In Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, there's a marvelous prophecy stated by God through Jeremiah that there was going to come a time in the future from that moment when the kingdom of God would be established on earth. Furthermore, it would not be left to human hands. God would overrule it. He would be the one to set, in essence, the legislative laws of it. It would not be left to human hands to tamper with it. But with that prophecy asserted, look at the next example I've asked you to consider, taking us to the very lips of our Savior in Matthew, the 16th chapter. In Matthew 16... Beginning in verse 13, Jesus in His preaching ministry had come to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, a far northern excursion in His preaching ministry. And while there, He said, Who do men say that I am? And of course, they quickly responded, Some say you're John the Baptist, some Jeremiah, some Elijah, one of the prophets. But Jesus asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter, of course, in his bold way, he said, Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus in reply said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Jesus very clearly said, I will build my church. Please note with me, the church at that moment had not yet been established. He still used a future tense description with respect to when it would be established. Let's turn forward to Acts chapter 1 verse 6. In that chapter, the Master, right before He ascended back to heaven, He still asserted that after the apostles asked Him about the restoration or the establishment of the kingdom, He still said it hadn't happened. May you and I never forget the kingdom, which again is the church. It was not in existence even at the time of Acts chapter 1. But if you turn the page to Acts chapter 2, all the references to the church change. Now the kingdom of God is said to be in existence. In fact, as you look at the closing verse to Acts chapter 2, verse number 47, it says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So what the church was, namely something future at the time of Acts chapter 1, was now a present tense reality by the time Acts chapter 2 closes. The church had been established. It came into being exactly as the God of heaven planned it to do. For that reason, look at some of these statements. Every passage following Acts chapter 2 refers to the church in a present tense, existent reality. I've listed just a few of the passages. In Colossians 1.13, Paul expressly told the Colossians that you have been translated out of the world and are now in the kingdom of the Lord. Notice the kingdom was in existence. Furthermore, to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 12 of the first of the Thessalonian epistles, Paul pointed out to them that they too were in the kingdom. One more time, the blessed church of our Lord. One last thing perhaps would be this. John, in Revelation 1, verse 9, he was enduring much affliction 
and tribulation in the kingdom of the Lord. Let's use those points then to cement in our thinking the understanding the church had come into existence in the record of Acts chapter 2. With that church having been established, please note the following observations. That church was established in purity. It was established with the utmost integrity. Human hands never touched it. It came into being with the blessedness of our Savior's death and the opening of the nature of that kingdom in Acts chapter 2. It was not the design of some group of scholars. It was not the design of some particularly bright individuals. It was God's plan. And the Savior executed that plan and brought the church into existence. With regard then to that church, that kingdom... Note some of these appreciations. All spiritual blessings are found in that body. Ephesians 1.3 says that all spiritual blessings are found in Christ, which again would mean ones in that kingdom. That means that truth and salvation and redemption, all of them are to be found and had and described in, in that organization. At this point, you may notice that slide now leads us to appreciate this. The Bible makes a dramatic statement. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, within the days of the Old Testament, as God made statement about the establishment of the kingdom, this amazing prophecy was asserted. In the days of these kings, referring to the Roman kings, shall the God of heaven, Daniel said, set up a kingdom which shall never, may I emphasize, never be destroyed. The Bible is exceedingly clear in that once that kingdom was established, and you and I have noted it was in Acts chapter 2, that it would never cease to be so long as the earth stands. It would never be destroyed. At that point, you and I are ready to look at the next element then in history. For as you and I close that slide, we can ask this question. So after the Master established the church and it came into existence, what happened to it in the decades, in the centuries afterward? Our next slide will provide us some details about the answer to that question. It is not a pretty picture. In fact, it's a very troubling one on several fronts. You see, the Word of God itself contains statements, prophecies, about some of the things that that church would face after it was established. Since these are very significant, I'm going to invite us to look very carefully at the wording of it. We'll start in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Please note with me that the church had begun in Acts chapter 2, so this was a number of years after the church was established, and yet the Apostle Paul, in addressing elders of the church in Ephesus, he had this to say to them, beginning in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. "'Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Paul already knew 
that once he left Ephesus and he finished his preaching there, that in the years that followed, there was going to be a drawing away. Paul told those elders, of your very group of people, there's going to be men arise who are going to speak things that are perverse. They're going to draw away disciples after them. As you and I give the understanding of what was going to happen, Paul thus asserted there's going to be a falling away. There's going to be a departing from the faith. Look at the next one in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3. It was the case that as Paul addressed Timothy, he made this rather remarkable statement. He said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which receive. I'm sorry, believe and know the truth. If we again may cast a spotlight upon that little trio of verses, Paul so stated that in his writing to Timothy, the Spirit says this, In the latter times, some will depart from the faith. How so, Paul? They'll give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. What kinds of things will they teach? Abstaining from marriage, commanding to abstain from meats. Paul thus told Timothy there's going to arise a set of doctrines. There's going to arise various teachings and it'll not be in accordance to the Spirit. Rather, the Spirit says these are going to depart from the faith. As you and I can already tell, the Word of God contained these realizations, these hints that foretold of some dark days for the church after it was established. Look at the third one in 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 and 3. Preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they'll turn away their ears from the truth and be turned into fables. Paul, what's this? There's going to come a time when even though the Word is accessible and available to them, they'll not be interested in it. They'll turn away their ears from the truth, be turned into fables. Paul thus admonished Timothy, you've got to be a stalwart defender of the truth of the gospel. Preach it in season and out of season. The fourth one, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. May I direct your attention to this one? It's a bit of a lengthier reading, but nonetheless exceedingly poignant. 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter. As Paul addressed these comments, it was the case that the church in Thessalonica had received a letter it had claimed to be from Paul, and it claimed that the second coming of Christ was a near event. Paul wrote to them and said, I didn't say that. I did not send to you a letter claiming that the second coming was soon to occur. As he explained all of that, he went on to explain it and elaborate like this. Verse number 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, namely the second coming of Christ shall not come except there come a falling away first, that man of sin be revealed, 
the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they, be, they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. We have just been told, as Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, look, the Lord is not going to come back until a falling away occurs first. Someone, as Paul described, is going to arise and sit in the very seat, as it were, of God, making rules and regulations and laws, and this person will exalt himself. But did you notice? He will be after the devil. It's not going to be the message of God and the message of truth that he proclaims. It'll be error, and men are going to follow him. Men are going to give, be given to this. May I say, in those four verses, the New Testament highlighted there was going to be a departure from the faith. The next thing on that slide then, let's look at the reality of what did happen in the centuries that followed the, the establishment of the church. Exactly what the New Testament said did come to pass. Men began to elevate themselves into positions that were not in accordance to the New Testament. God, in fact, organized the church in that every congregation should have its own elders. No elders of one church have any authority over another congregation. 1 Peter 5 verses 1 to 4 detail that elders have authority only in their own local congregation. But yet men began to arise who wanted to occupy positions of authority in other places. And you and I know today there's a system of bishops and presbyters and cardinals and various others who have authority over entire groups of churches in the Catholic persuasion. And there are other denominational bodies like the Methodists and the Baptists that do something similar. Perhaps in light of all that notice, all of that began with the falling away in the principles that we've begun to appreciate this morning. Not only that, look at this very brief listing of other false doctrines that began to arise and in the name of religion began to be taught. Things like extreme unction and penance, purgatory, sprinkling as a substitute for baptism, infant baptism, the selling of indulgences. That one was the one that in fact played a major role in the efforts of Martin Luther a number of centuries after these events. The question might be asked, how were individuals then to be forgiven? When they committed an error, what could they do? The Catholic Church at one time began to sell indulgences for money. 
to sell indulgences. And if you'll buy one of these, that God will forgive you and you'll be able to enjoy a measure of salvation. Martin Luther and others began to recognize that's not in the Bible anywhere. You can't just buy forgiveness in that regard. And yet the Catholic Church came to the point where they began to teach those kinds of things. You may notice then on the slide, this period of time in which there was this dramatic departure from the faith, more often than not, you can call that the Dark Ages. The blessed light of the glorious message of truth was veiled and hidden. Men had turned away from it. The darkness that shrouded humanity was because they had chosen to ignore the truth of the Word of God. I might say that what ultimately helped to lighten that came, among other things, in 1455 with the inventing of the printing press. Prior to that, a copy of the Bible took one year for one scribe to produce one of them. That's how long it took to copy it. Finally, with a printing press developed by Johann Gutenberg in 1455, now you could turn out Bibles so very readily. And suddenly that shroud of veil was lifted, and the blessedness of the Word of God at least came to be more readily appreciated. On that slide, then you'll note this. What we've just described, these dark ages, began to be lifted with an occurrence of what's often called the Reformation Movement. May I emphasize the word reformation? We aren't restoring anything. We're just seeking to reform the errors of the Catholic Church. And look at a few of the details. This movement, which attempted to reform what was an error, it wasn't interested in restoring the original, only reforming some of the practices of what was already wrong. Look at a few of these details. Martin Luther... Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, William Tyndale, just to name four of those notable individuals. They labored with an effort to again restore, I'm sorry, to reform merely that, that Catholic church. But may I ask every one of us to note at the bottom, to reform that was not a restoration. All you were doing was cleaning up a few of the more notable errors, but you weren't going back to the original. This movement was not about restoration. But as the slide turns to the next one, let's quickly highlight one of the saddest consequences of the Reformation movement. One of the most tragic catastrophes that it ever brought about. Denominationalism. In fact, as you give thought to this movement that only tried to reform the Catholic Church, these various individuals as they brought about those reforms, the various fixes led to sprouting up of all kinds of various denominational bodies. For example, the Lutheran church began in 1520 with the efforts of Martin Luther in his attempt to again reform in a basic way some of the most egregious errors of Catholicism. What came out of that was an organization bearing his name, the Lutheran church that still exists today. But that wasn't the only one. Just a few years later, with the efforts of the Church of England, Henry VIII and others, came the Episcopalian Church that still exists today. Now, may we say the Episcopalian Church teaches something different than the Lutheran, 
and neither one is patterned after the original. Look at the third one. The Presbyterian Church came with the work of John Calvin in 1534 and perhaps placed on final footing by John Knox in 1540. One more time, different from either the Lutheran or the Episcopalian, but it is not patterned after the original. They were only trying to reform a few of the matters about that corrupt Catholic Church. Look at the next one. In 1607, came about with the work of Smith and others, the Baptist Church, originally placing a high degree of emphasis upon baptism. But notice, 1607, it came about. Still not patterned after the original. It was only an after effect in that it was a matter of reformation. With the work of John Wesley in 1739 came the Methodist Church, both of which still exist today. The idea still was not restoration. The idea was a reforming of the corruptions that were observed in that day. With that, we close that slide and perhaps emphasize one final time. To this point, all of these organizations that have sprouted up in the the, the denominational world They began in an effort to reform. But the best part of the story is yet to come. Let's turn the slide then and look not at reformation, but at restoration. I began the lesson by highlighting again, if you're restoring a car or a piece of furniture, you make it like it was when it was first manufactured. In the light of these denominational bodies, there came to be obviously some strong reason in which individuals who were even appreciative in any way of the Bible began to realize that this is not in harmony with the Word of God. And there came to be a strong element of consideration and passion for a returning to the original pattern, a restoration. Let's begin that slide then like this. The passion in the heart of these individuals was centered on authority. We aren't interested in reforming anything. We want it like Jesus originally built it. And we won't be satisfied with anything less. And so in the words of Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Cale read that text earlier. In regard to this concept of restoration, all throughout the Word of God, that is what the Bible teaches. It is not our desire to instill our opinion, our speculation, even our viewpoint. That's meaningless both now and certainly at the day of judgment. We want then to restore New Testament Christianity. That was the idea in the heart of many individuals that began to labor in the early 1800s and in the late 1700s. In particular, let me ask you to notice a few of the verses that capture our attention on this point. In 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And therefore, one could begin to ask, What's the Bible authority then for baptizing an infant? What's the Bible authority for these other practices that these various religious bodies have begun to teach by that point? And as those who studied the Word of God 
readily found. There was no authority for these things. And therefore, in an effort to restore the pure church as the Lord had founded it, several slogans began to be developed, and oh, how sweet they were, and they continue to still be so powerful. We'll call Bible things by Bible names, and we'll do Bible things in Bible ways. We speak where the Bible speaks. We're silent where the Bible is silent. That began to be the slogan, the mantra, if you please, of those restoration leaders. And therefore, as they began to labor, especially here in the United States of America, many of their names you and I know very well. I've listed a few of them as we come to the next slide. And some of these names, people like Barton W. Stone, people like Moses Lard, Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, individuals like J.W. McGarvey, John Smith, Walter Scott, David Lipscomb, Talbert Fanning, N.B. Hardiman, Marshall Keeble, H. Leo Bowles, B.C. Goodpasture, Guy Woods, and a whole host of others. You, of course, and I appreciate that none of these established the church. Not one of them would have claimed to do that. That was not their interest. They were restoring what had already been established 1,800 years earlier. Jesus established His church. Their idea, their goal, their passion was simply to put back into the general practice what the Lord had established so many centuries earlier. You and I know well that some of those individuals... Of course, their legacy, their works are very well known. History testifies to it. I did suggest, though, and think that it wise to reflect perhaps a bit more in detail on Alexander Campbell because you on occasion could be called a Campbellite. In a derogatory way, others may well refer to you and I that way as if Alexander Campbell started the Church of Christ. He didn't, and he never claimed to. It was merely his desire to again bring to prominence that blessed body that Jesus had established so many centuries earlier. Look at a few details of his life. He was actually born in Ireland in 1788. His father's name was Thomas. And already by that early stage, Thomas had begun to think powerfully about the truth of the Bible into distinction of what was commonly already taught. Alexander, of course, came to soon recognize the absolute need for the Bible's authority in all things. In 1807, Thomas came to this country. He left the family behind, and the idea was he was going to get things ready and then bring the whole family to be with him. Two years later, Alexander came to the United States of America. The year was 1809. But I'd like to interject this point. There is record that there were churches of Christ in existence in America before 1809. Don't let anybody ever convict you that Alexander Campbell started the church. He didn't. Even in this country, there were already congregations of the Lord's people prior to 1809. Let's read even further. Alexander Campbell, as you and I would perhaps expect, had a keen interest in the truth. I'd like to read a quotation from him. Alexander Campbell said this in 1830, Often I have said and often I have written that truth 
Truth eternal and divine is now and long has ever been the pearl of great price to me. To her I will, with the blessing of God, sacrifice everything. But on no altar will I offer her a victim. If I have lost sight of her, God who searcheth the hearts, know I have not done it intentionally. With my whole heart I have sought the truth, and I know that I have found it. That kind of sentiment was well descriptive of all of those restoration leaders. They merely wanted to use the Word of God to bring about the reality and to present to the human family the truth that had already been embedded in the Word of God so many centuries earlier. For that reason, you'll notice that again, Alexander did not found the Church of Christ, though some might claim that he did. Alexander Campbell was a prolific writer. In fact, for decades, he printed a publication that helped to restore in a powerful way the truth. And even in this southeastern part of the United States of America, the millennial harbinger was known far and wide. In addition to that, he translated his own New Testament, often called the Living Oracles. He was a sufficient scholar of Greek. He even again made his own translation. There's a song in our book that he wrote. Would you please turn to song number 692? 692, notice at the top who wrote it. Alexander Campbell in 1834. Thus, if you and I were to just note the words of that song, how moving they can be as you reflect on the life and times of the Restoration Movement. I would suspect on our next singing night, we need to, we need to sing this song. And I'll try my best to lead it then, but for now just note the words. Upon the banks of Jordan stood the great reformer John and pointed to the Lamb of God, the long-expected one. He bade all things who did, I'm sorry, he bade all those who did repent forthwith to be immersed and so assuring them that God had sent the message he rehearsed. Would you please note the greatness of that verse? Again, the denominational world often removed the emphasis of baptism, and yet Alexander wrote a song that highlights those who repent need to be baptized. He highlighted immersion, not sprinkling, not any other mode even acceptable for baptism. Look at verse 3. But now the reign of God has come. Notice, God's church had been established. He was no Zionist. He didn't think anything about a future thousand-year reign. The reign of grace below, and Jesus reigns upon God's throne, remission to bestow. Verse 4, He bids all nations look to Him as prince of life and peace and offers pardon to all them who now accept His grace. And then the refrain reads, Now I see the blood of the Lamb. Now I see the blood of the Lamb. "'Tis the blood of Jesus, the crucified one, now I see the blood of the Lamb." That's a beautiful song written by Alexander Campbell in 1834. Again, we'll sing that on our next singing night with the blessing of God. Let's come near the close of our lesson, though, by highlighting a few final thoughts about restoration. And we'll use them to motivate our place in the continuing movement we would call restoration. It all begins at the top. 
May you and I never forget what distinguishes the church of Christ from every other religious organization on earth. It's a matter of authority. Plain and simple, it's a matter of authority. You and I demand biblical authority for all that we do, not only in the concourse of, of worship, but in every other aspect of religious life. And if that biblical authority isn't there, then you and I, of course, do not do it. There's where we differ from the Baptists. There's where we differ from the Methodists. They have a belief in Jesus, admittedly, but they are willing to compromise on biblical authority. There are many things, of course, they're willing to do for which they have not the slightest biblical authority. And they're okay with that, but we are not. Because you and I know that whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3.17 And therefore on that slide, may I say that all it would take is one or two generations... If you and I fail in light of this restoration slogan, if we lose sight of that matter in authority, it'll not take but a generation or two, and then, for all practical purposes, we'd be back in the dark ages. Because without the light of God's truth, oh, how darkened, in fact, we are. For that reason, you and I today, although we live two centuries this side of Alexander Campbell, we still believe the same things that he did relative to the need for restoration. We aren't interested in reforming anything, and we aren't satisfied with it either. I want to be a part of that body that Jesus established, and I am interested in no other. And all of us must feel that way, because the church of our Lord, the church of Jesus Christ, is the kingdom of God on earth, and it is the only one headed to heaven. Paul said so in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and following. This very morning as we close that slide and close this lesson, may I say that how remarkable it is that the movement that we have utilized in our study today could be perhaps summarized this way. Jesus established the church in purity. It was without spot or blemish or any such thing, Ephesians 5, 27. And yet, over the course of centuries, men turned to their own ideas and there came a falling away. There came a departure from the faith and then a restoration movement, ultimately turning men back to that same church that Jesus had established. And today, how thankful we are for the church of our Lord. Romans 16, 16 still says, The churches of Christ salute you. And today, that's still our goal. That's still our idea. As we close this lesson today, may we be thankful for the truth of God and happy to continue the thought of the restoration movement. Today, if there's anyone in this audience that's not a member of the body of Christ, don't you know that the New Testament asserts the needfulness of that? You can't be saved apart from it. Ephesians 5.23 details that truth. If you have never obeyed the gospel, why don't you believe in Jesus? You're not believing in me or our, or our elders. You're not believing in anything in particular other than Christ and His gospel. Believe in that fully. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if we could assist you in that way today, how sweet it would be for us and you. If you have become a Christian, though, but you haven't been faithful... 
you realize the slogan for restoration is such that you need to be a part of that body, faithful to it. And if we could help by praying on your behalf to God, upon your repentance and confession, God will forgive you. If we could assist you in any of these ways today, we invite you to come now while together we stand and while we sing.